Boy, I'm really excited about the care team, um, and I'm especially excited about that elder care. How old do you have to be to sign up for elder care? Uh, I mean, it's a different kind of elder care. Okay, Bridge Kids, thank you uh, for joining us, and uh, you're dismissed. I guess today we're going to talk about nitpicking. Did you know that nitpicking is a fine art that has been around for centuries? Nitpicking is the act of removing nits. Nits are the eggs of lice, generally head lice. As nits nits become cemented or attached to individual hairs, they can be very difficult to remove, at least That's what I read. Uh, Some combs, knit combs, can remove some knits. Some combs cannot remove knits. If you had lice, there were primarily two common ways to deal with this inconvenience before modern medicine. You could shave your head. That's a possibility, like me. Or you could find a knit picker. Someone who would meticulously examine every hair follicle on your head and remove the nits or lice eggs just one at a time very carefully. And obviously, nitpicking requires extreme attention to detail. Eventually, nitpicking took on another meaning that is more common for us today. To nitpick means to be excessively concerned or critical of inconsequential details. Jesus often dealt with nitpickers in his ministry, and they were typically the Jewish religious uh, leaders. Oh my. There we go. It's a disaster if you're out of order. Uh, nitpickers were extensively concerned and critical of inconsequential, inconsequential details in Jesus' ministry. So take your Bibles and your cell phones, turn to Mark chapter uh, 2, verse 13. And if you don't have a cell phone or a Bible, we have some. Not cell phones, but we have Bibles. So just raise your hand. Uh, we'll be glad to hand, hand one out to you. First of all, uh, if you have an outline, please follow along. I encourage you to. It's a great way to learn. Jesus was criticized for hanging out with the wrong people. Jesus was criticized, number one, for hanging out with the wrong people. Uh, Verse 13, uh, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Let's look at our map. Just as a reminder, actually you see this every week, don't you? Start to get a feel for the lay of the land here. Just want to remind you, Uh, So the Mediterranean Sea to the left, and that opens up the whole Roman world, the Mediterranean. And uh, Israel is this little uh, nation right here on the east of the Mediterranean. Notice at the bottom left, Bethlehem. Remember, that's where Jesus was born. Jerusalem is where the temple is. And you go up north on the left side is Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up. And then we're going to go to Capernaum. That's the furthest north city that we see. And it's right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. So it's a lakefront, 
And uh, th remember, that's where Peter and Andrew lived. That's where James and John lived. This is where Jesus made his headquarters. And that's where this takes place uh, in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Uh, Jesus was teaching this large crowd. What did Jesus teach? Do you remember that? Mark chapter 1, typically his message was, Behold, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus walked along, uh, he encountered, let me uh, just read, this is the invitation to Levi Matthew, verses 13 and 14, the invitation to Levi Matthew. Uh, look at verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, large crowd came to him and he began to teach. Verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphas, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Mark uses the name Levi. Matthew, for this same situation, uses the name Matthew. Why is that? Because it's the same person. Very common for more than one name. Remember, Peter was Simon, Simon Peter. He also had a name, an Aramaic called Cephas. And... Um, Levi probably was from the tribe of Levi, and he um, um, uh, he's, eth he's ethnically a Jewish man, probably from the tribe of Levi, and uh, he is employed by Herod Antipas as a tax collector. Herod Antipas is a Jewish uh, uh, tetrarch. He was a puppet for the Roman government. There's a lot of politics going on in the uh, New Testament, in the, especially in the Gospels. So, because there are people that follow Herod called Herodians, and we're going to see them in a little bit. Um, so, Herod is a Jewish guy, but he's not religious. He's sort of responsible for the government there in Galilee, and he has to report to the Romans. He's just a puppet official. Um, if you remember, tax collectors were hated by the Jews for being traitors. They were social outcasts. As a matter of fact, probably a leper was higher on the social scale than a tax collector. Um, here we see Jesus sought out Levi, and he invited Levi to join his group, to join his company. And Levi, Levi Matthew, immediately leaves his post and follows uh, Jesus. Now, probably, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, Jesus probably had previous encounters with Levi Matthew. Levi Matthew maybe tagged along once in a while to hear Jesus teach. Maybe Levi Matthew uh, saw some of the miracles take place. One thing probably would have been expected in Capernaum, there were several tax collectors. Pretty big business. Tax collectors, by the way, made their money. They, they owed the Roman government a certain amount, and then whatever they could charge on top of that was theirs. These were lucrative jobs. A lot of people wanted to be tax collectors. In fact, Levi Matthew is going to get up and walk away. There's going to be somebody to replace him right away because they want that job. It was very likely that Peter and Andrew and James and John knew Levi really well. Maybe they didn't like him, but they had to pay taxes for every fish that they caught in Capernaum. And 
reported, and Levi was probably the closest guy, and uh, I'm guessing they probably knew each other, and they're really going to be different trying to come together in one band uh, of disciples. Verse 15, the party at Levi Matthew's house. Look at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Levi Matthew, this probably could be some kind of celebration that Levi Matthew is leaving his tax collecting post. Sort of like a farewell dinner. But Levi invites everybody to his house. He had a lot of friends, tax collectors and sinners, um, joined him. And notice that they put, uh, Mark writes, tax collectors first. Because they were the least liked of the group. Sinners are just sinners, but tax collectors are worse. Uh, Several tax collectors in the area, and Levi knew them all. Capernaum was located on a major trade route that connected Damascus, Syria, to the Mediterranean. Lots of trade went through Capernaum. That would be common for the Roman Empire. So Roman Empire wanted a piece of the action. They had to go through Capernaum. They went through Levi's toll booth. Uh, sinners included all kinds of people, but mostly they were just common, everyday people like us. And they weren't highly religious. They weren't viewed by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, as, uh, you know, like ceremonially clean. They hadn't followed all the rules that had been made up. And so they were kind of low life uh, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. Um, common people were considered unclean and ignorant because if they knew something, they wouldn't live that way. That was kind of the idea. Verse 16, the question about inappropriate associations. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They have high expectations for Jesus. Jesus is a rabbi. They assume Jesus understands all these things that you're supposed to know to be a religious leader. And surely Jesus wouldn't mess up like this and eat with sinners and tax collectors and allow his disciples to to do the same. Remember, the Pharisees were religious experts, and they were separatists. That's where the word Pharisee comes from. They were separatists. They didn't want to mix in with common people. They viewed themselves as ceremonially clean because they followed all the rules. And it was more than just the Bible. They had a whole lot of extra rules that helped them make sure that they were ceremonially clean, at least in their own eyes. And um, they they make up the rules, and and the rules, uh, many of these rules aren't in the Bible. And they viewed themselves as more righteous than other people. The Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples why uh, he would eat with such low-life tax collectors and common people who were sinners. Eating a meal, sitting down uh, like Jesus and the disciples did with tax collectors and common people uh, was very intimate fellowship if you sat at the same table and you shared the same food. And uh, for a Pharisee, that would make one ceremonially unclean. This would be unthinkable for a Pharisee. Jesus gives a clarification about the target audience in verse 17. 
Look at verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, Jesus quotes a popular proverb of the day. It's not in the book of Proverbs, but it was just a popular saying. And he skillfully makes an excellent point. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's his target audience. It's not the righteous, but it's those who are far from God, separated from God. He says, I did not come for the spiritually healthy. I came for the spiritually sick. Remember the Pharisees viewed themselves as righteous. They had no clue that Jesus was talking about them. They certainly weren't sinners. And uh, so Jesus is talking about the other poor people. The Pharisees viewed the tax collectors and the sinners as totally unrighteous. Jesus came for sinners, all sinners. The Pharisees were sinners, but they were totally blind by their own pride. In the Pharisees' view, they were totally righteous. Jesus, on the other hand, is very clear. He wants to hang out with people who realize they don't have it all together. He is willing to spend time with anyone who is interested in him. Good news is, it's true today. Absolutely true today. He is willing to spend time with anybody who is interested in him. Next, Jesus is criticized for eating habits in verses 18 through 22. The question about eating habits is verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? John the Baptist, we don't know a lot about John the Baptist and his disciples fasting. We know that John the Baptist had a very clear role. His job was to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 40, Malachi 4. He had a specific job. He was to preach, proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand because he was announcing the coming of Jesus. He was getting hearts ready. They were baptized, showing that they had turned back to God and they wanted to meet the Messiah. So when Jesus shows up, there's a lot of people who want to hear Jesus' message. John the Baptist and his disciples apparently were fasting, and it was about their desire for people to repent. We still don't know a lot about this, but they have good motives. That's the point here. The Pharisees fasted, get this, every Monday and every Thursday. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, there's only one command for fasting for the people of Israel, and it was on the Day of Atonement. So one day of the year, they were asked to fast. But the Pharisees were doing it Monday and Thursday every week. And the, it's like the more they did this, the better they got. And the, the more righteous they were. And it helped them separate from the rest of the world. And they indeed were separate, and they thought they were totally superior to other people because of their sacrifice they made. So it didn't seem to help them become more spiritually tuned into God. It seemed to build their pride. The parable of the bridegroom is verses 19 through 20. Um, verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have them with them. Why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? Jesus quickly uses a common word picture of a bridegroom, picture of a wedding. 
Uh, weddings were important celebrations. Weddings had feast. It's time to celebrate and time to enjoy food. Um, the guests of a wedding are not supposed to mourn. You know, being independent it may be sad that, to give up independence, but the guests aren't supposed to mourn. Jesus is referring to himself as a bridegroom. His disciples are wedding guests. God is doing something new, and the Messiah is present, and that's something for his followers to celebrate. The kingdom of God is near. Why? The king is present. That is something to celebrate. Verse 20, But the time will come when the bridegroom will, take, will be taken from them, and on, the, on that day they will fast. This is the first time it's alluded to in the book of Mark. It's Jesus makes an allusion to his coming death. There will be a time that's coming. The bridegroom will be removed and the disciples will indeed mourn and they will indeed have a reason to fast. But not now because the king is present. Jesus knew what would lie ahead. Isaiah 53.8 is a scripture written in the 8th century before Christ. And this was clear on Jesus' mind what was coming. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, he, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off. That means physical death. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. This is about Messiah. He was punished for the sins of the people of Israel. And we know for all people. Um, this is how the bridegroom will be removed. And it speaks of the death of Messiah. At this point, Jesus is the only one who understands this, that the bridegroom will be removed. So what did Jesus think about fasting? He didn't fast. His disciples didn't fast. What did he think about fasting? Matthew 6, verse 16 through 18. Jesus taught this. He said, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. You know, it's about like getting attention every Monday and every Thursday. Hey, look at me, everybody. I'm fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Next slide so that they will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Jesus is saying, hey, when you fast, he's just assuming that his followers will fast on occasion. And when you do, make it a private thing. It's not about getting attention. It's not about impressing anyone. It's just between you and the Father. Verses 21 and 22, the parable of the wineskins. So Jesus is going to tell a parable no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will uh, pull away from the old, making the tear worse. This is probably a little bit harder for you to grasp because when you go to the store, everything you buy is pre-shrunk, right? I remember a day when my mom would buy me brand new blue jeans and they would fit perfectly. And then she would wash them and they wouldn't button and then they uh, were right above my ankles. That's the way it was. We, everything we buy is pre-shrunk. And, but the idea is you take an old garment, it's worn, it's been washed, it's, been, it's shrunk. And then you take a new piece of cloth and you add it in. Now, 
you might want to wash it to shrink it. If you, but if you didn't wash it and then you had this unshrunk, you put it in, it's going to tear apart after it's washed. That's his point. And then he goes on and he talks uh, uh, about wineskins, verse 22. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And this parable makes great preaching. Um, we could do the whole sermon on this one. And here's what Jesus is saying. Um, he's saying, likewise, in winemaking, you should pour new wine. You should not pour new wine into an old wineskin. Um, an old wineskin could be well used, already stretched out, dry, a little brittle. So you pour new wine into it that hasn't fermented yet. And as it ferments, it will expand and burst the old wineskin. That's all he's saying. He's saying if you make new wine, you need to pour it into a new wineskin that's still soft and supple and that can expand. And what's his point? Jesus is doing something new. The kingdom of God is near the kingdom of God is at hand, and he is bringing in something new, a new thing, a new covenant that will be made by shedding his blood. And there will be a new testament with it. And there is something old that's going to be um, replaced. And it's the old covenant. And some old ways and some old laws that will be replaced with something new. And it requires a new structure, a new form, and it is about new wineskins. In verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus is criticized for breaking the Sabbath day. Here's the situation, verse 23. One of the things you need to know in the book of Mark and especially, it's pretty clear right here. These are not in chronological order. We like things in chronological order. We think history, everything ought to be A, B, C, D. This happened this second, this happened two hours later, this happened the day after. That's not how they wrote necessarily. And that's not how Mark wrote. He's writing history, but it doesn't have to fit into the Western mind way of doing chronology. So, uh, the situation, verse 23, on the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. It was a Sabbath. We don't know how close it was to the events that just preceded it. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Could have been corn, could have been wheat, could have been barley. Sabbath day is the sixth day of the week, and the purpose of the sixth day was to rest from their work. Um, so as they walked through the grain field, the disciples picked some heads of grain. Uh, the question about the Sabbath is in verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, what are they doing? Nitpicking. Because they have a rule for this. And you can't do this on Sabbath. Now, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament that you can't do this. But they have a rule for it. Um, breaking the Sabbath was a serious violation. In fact, 
It was a death penalty for breaking the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Aren't you glad there's no death penalty for not coming to church? Wouldn't that be a difficult one? Here is what the law of the Old Testament said about the Sabbath. Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and the harvest, you must rest. So, no harvesting. And um, disciples were picking heads of grain and eating that. Is that harvesting? Um, Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 23. That's not Deuteronomy, that's Leviticus. Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. Why? If you put them in your basket, you're harvesting. You can't take from your neighbor like that. You want to have a couple of handfuls? It's okay. Verse 25. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. You cannot harvest your neighbor's grain. But it's okay if you have a couple of hands, handfuls. Kind of a gracious approach. I don't think we would put up with that very long. Can you imagine the multitudes going through your grain field following Jesus and they decide to have a little, they could eat your whole crop. Um, Jesus gives an explanation. But, and so here's the point. Jesus and his disciples did not violate any law. Nor did they violate the Sabbath because that was not reaping. There was a freedom to do this as long as they didn't cut down or take it away. The explanation, verses 25 and 26, he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Um, and he's, Jesus is going back to an incident in David's life, maybe 900 years earlier. He says in verse 26, In the days of Abiathar the high priest. Now, if you're really technical and you go back and do your research, you'll find out that Abiathar was not the high priest. In fact, his father was Abimelech. But, so why is this an error? Here's probably how this uh, situation developed. Abiathar is way more prominent than Abimelech as the high priest. So if you wanted to find the story you would go to the scroll that had Abiathar in it. And you would find Abiathar, and then you could find the incident that took place with David. He ent- it says, um, He, David, entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also uh, gave some to his companions. So this is kind of an unusual uh, situation. David uh, was on the run. He was actually serving God. It was kind of an emergency. They were really hungry, and they were still fighting. And uh, David comes, and um, he asks for the bread that's consecrated. It's not to be eaten by David and and his followers, but this is an emergency. It's really kind of a life-threatening issue. And uh, David was given the bread to his, uh, his men, 
and uh, they apparently survived. Here's the point. Jesus is saying there was a higher principle involved with David. David uh, was never uh, confronted. Uh, God never uh, brought this back to David's attention. There's no recording of this. And now Jesus is saying it was okay. So there's a higher principle at work. The main point, verses 27 and 28, and they said to him, the Sabbath, uh, excuse me, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And here Jesus applies his skill at discerning good theology as well as giving a divine interpretation. And he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This higher principle. And the Sabbath um, was made for man. Man was not made to serve the Sabbath. The benefit is for the man. And there's even a little uh, application there for us. God designed that we rest every week. He did. And uh, you have to be intentional about finding rest every week. You pick rest. You're, You're free to pick rest. And be thankful you don't get stoned if you miss a day. But rest is good. Um, the, um, the Pharisees had a rule that the Sabbath could be interrupted in a life-threatening situation. Now, they didn't see this as a life-threatening situation, but Jesus didn't violate the Sabbath at any, uh, in any respect. When Jesus uh, said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, which is a fairly powerful thing, his listeners probably didn't uh, uh, get any more understanding. They just probably made them mad that Jesus would say this. Now we're going to jump to chapter 3, the Sabbath test. Again, this is not chronological. Verse 3, another time. Not necessarily the next thing that happened, but another time Jesus went into the synagogue, probably in Capernaum, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So there's an intentional test here. They want to trip Jesus up. So they watched him closely. You know, they show up to to investigate Jesus. They watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. You know, they're setting him up. And here's the deal about healing on the Sabbath. They have a plan for this. It's okay to heal on the Sabbath if it's life-threatening. However, if it's not life-threatening, you should wait for another day. That was the law of the Pharisees. It's not in the Bible. So they're, they're coming at Jesus with this assumption. Jesus, who knows what's going on in the hearts of men, tells the man uh, who's physically handicapped to stand up in front of everyone. This is going to be a little bit of a showdown right here. And then he gives a question for the critics, verse 4. Then Jesus asks them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Uh, let's think this through. Let's be logical. Which... Which is uh, lawful. Um, The Pharisee had their rule, but they don't say anything. But they remained silent. The Sabbath is for good. The Sabbath was for life. That's what rest was for. It was for refreshment. It was to help things heal. It was good. And even there was Sabbath for the land to rest. 
But there was no answer. They remained silent. Verses 5 and 6, a challenge for the critics. Look at verse 5. He looked around at them in anger. little insight. The verbal form here is an, an aorist tense, a past tense, and it means that it was just, Jesus was just angry for a second. He looked at them, and he was angry, and then he dealt with it. And then he was deeply distressed. That's present tense. And that was an ongoing uh, grief he had about the leaders, a mourning about their hard hearts, distress at their stubborn hearts. And he said to them, stretch out your hand. He said this to the man. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Um, that's kind of an interesting way to do this. Um, Jesus healed the man, but he did not violate the Sabbath. Think about this. Jesus healed the man, and he didn't even touch the man. Jesus didn't do anything. He just said, he just uh, spoke the words, and the man was healed. Verse 6, last verse. Here we're coming home. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wow, how did you get there? Uh, fasting on Mondays and Thursdays didn't seem to give them any spiritual insight into who the Messiah was or what God was doing. Um, you know, seeing the Son of God heal a man should have brought amazement, humility, and a, probably an admission of guilt. But they were convinced that Jesus must be eliminated. And this is the first mention of the leaders plotting against Jesus. And this will follow him throughout his ministry. Um, the Pharisees went out to begin to plot with the Herodians. The Herodians were not religious people. Uh, they were well connected with Herod Antipas. They were Herod's eyes and ears. Uh, they aligned with the Pharisees. So it wasn't a religious alignment, but it was just being against Jesus. Because Jesus was a threat to both of them in their minds. Okay, some lessons, some principles from the whole text. So let's just think this through a little bit. Lesson number one, expect the work of God to be criticized. When God is doing things, there are nitpickers. Don't be surprised. If God does something good, maybe he answers a prayer. Maybe somebody uh, comes to faith in Christ or somebody makes a big commitment. Maybe even wanting to go serve God full time with their life. That there will be critics. Expect, uh, expect the work of God to be criticized. Secondly, becoming, uh, beware of becoming a critical, judgmental person. Beware of becoming a critical, judgmental person. The Pharisees had good intentions, uh, but they got off the course. They thought their criticisms were valid. They had some huge blind spots. Judgmental people often have huge blind spots. And be a critical thinker, not a critical person. Be a critical thinker. Some of you are really good at critical thinking. Some of you, oh, it's no big deal. One of the dangers of critical thinkers, critical thinkers means to divide, discern, put things in categories. A critical thinker can become a critical person, and, and they just focus on things that are wrong. Instead of building up the body, they 
might tear down the body with the negative. Beware. Thirdly, beware of pride that causes some people to feel superior to others. The Pharisees were convinced that their lifestyle and choices made, their, made them superior to all other people. They were full of pride. Humility teaches us to appreciate our salvation. It teaches us to serve others. It teaches us uh, to share with others. It teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Beware of pride that causes some people to feel superior to others. Fourthly, be intentional in spending time with people who are far from God. Be intentional. Jesus was intentional in spending time with people. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Um, You know, we too are called to be intentional. He modeled it for us. To spend time with people who don't know Jesus yet. Uh, To build relationships. You know, we can be in the world but not of the world. And you can build relationships with people without being of the world. You don't have to do everything you're doing. But you can certainly build relationships, friendships, real friendships, real caring with the goal of helping them see who Jesus is and that they might come to faith in Christ. We have a core value here at the bridge. Lost people matter to God and therefore they matter to us. We don't actually say it that way. Lost people matter to God. I like that. People far from God matter to God. And may, may you and I be open to every person God brings our way. Fifth lesson, remember God can totally transform a life. Remember God can totally transform a life. I know you already knew that. I just wanted to remind you. Levi was a tax collector. Levi was far from God. He had no interest in spiritual things, and then he encountered Jesus. And Jesus called him out of his former lifestyle. And Matthew is going to become one of the twelve. He will become an apostle He will write the gospel of Matthew and he will go out and plant the church in Acts chapter 2. So remember, God can totally transform a life. God is still in the life-changing business today. Number six, last one. It is better to get caught up in grace than religious rules and traditions. It's better to get caught up in grace than religious rules and traditions. It's okay to have traditions, and traditions can be good and they can be fun. Just be careful that you don't put traditions above truth. Um, we can have, we can make rules. We we have a church constitution. Well, there's some tradition in that, and there are some rules in that. Um, we have we even have growth group commitments, and they can be good, but we don't want to get caught up in those. When I went to seminary, uh, the seminary I went to had a dress code. I was required to wear a tie and jacket every day to class for five years. And I did. It was no big deal. And I signed a commitment that I wouldn't smoke or drink as a student of the seminary. It was no big deal. Um, the danger is when you... And it's, you can have dress codes for things. Some, you know, sometimes... You put your child in a school and they have a dress code. That's no big deal. If you, you're comfortable with it, just do it, you know. But the danger is, is when we put this tradition or this rule above the truth or above Scripture. Um, 
So if you have to choose between a rule and a, and tradition, choose grace. Always choose grace. Grace uh, means to cut people some slack. Give people room for growth. Okay? Next week, chapter 3. Let's stand and I'll pray. Father, I want to thank you uh, for Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 and uh, just to continue to watch Jesus' life. Lord, help us to be more like Jesus, to extend grace to people, to extend kindness to people. Lord, um, may we be like Jesus in growing in our, our knowledge of Scripture and understanding of Scripture and learning how to apply it. Jesus was highly skilled at knowing how to answer people. Lord, help us to become more skilled in giving answers. Thank you for his compassion. Thank you that uh, he cared about people, people who were hurting, people who suffered, people who had handicaps, people who uh, felt outside of the system, felt like they didn't matter, they didn't belong. Lord, help us to have that kind of compassion. For Jesus' sake, amen.